So Genesis 49. In today's chapter, we're going to witness Jacob doing something that's uncommon in our culture today. He gathers his sons together to speak over them, to bless them. Most Americans, we don't do this. We don't speak blessings over our children. Some within the Jewish community, they still do this, but what they do is different than what we see happening in our text today. The manner in which they speak blessing or prophesy over their children is much different than what Israel is doing. What they do when they speak blessings or prophesy is something like this. They will say, this is my son David, the doctor. And David is six years old. And every time that David is introduced the rest of his life, that is how he is introduced. This is my son David, the doctor. And perhaps David would, will become a doctor, since this is how he grows up thinking of himself. But this is not what Israel is doing. This is not what we see happening in our chapter from today. As we read through this chapter and look at it, what it tells us, what he is telling his sons, we're going to be forced to tackle one of those hot topics within Christianity, that of spiritual gifts, specifically of prophecy. Because of the context in which Jacob speaks to his sons today, and because it's recorded for all eternity in the word of God, we will be thinking through that gift that is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 14.1, where we're told to pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. Most people, we know that God sent prophets to his chosen people, and even to some foreign nations, or we know who those prophets are in the Bible. We have their books written and preserved for us. We have five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. We know that. But was Jacob a prophet? Was what he was doing, as told to us in this chapter, prophecy? If so, then what specifically is a prophet? And what is prophecy? And there's three more questions that I'm going to ask and answer from this text. The first is, why is there a difference between the sins of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi and that of Judah? Second question, did these prophecies all come to pass? And then the third question, why is it recorded for us? So let's begin. Verse 1 and 2. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days. Assemble together and hear, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. These verses are where we find that first question. Was Jacob a prophet? Because it sure seems that he thought that he was a prophet. Let me tell you what will befall you in the last days. It sure seems that he thought that he had some inside information. It sure seems like he was confident that what he was about to tell his sons was set in stone, that what he said was going to happen. So was Jacob a prophet? Well, Jesus himself answered that question for us. There was this time when a, this random person asked Jesus a flip question concerning being saved. He said, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? 
It's like that person had a bet going with one of his friends, or maybe he had been in an argument with a person who said that only the elect would be saved. So he goes straight to the source, and he asks him, Jesus, a question. And he asks him in such a way to tip his hand, and perhaps even to get Jesus to answer in his favor. And Jesus answered that man. And his answer was this. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It sounds like Jesus took that general question kind of personally. But not personally as if it were an attack on him, but personally as if the answer, he's directing that answer directly back to that person. Because his answer is singular. He's saying, you strive to enter. You don't worry about other people. Don't concern yourself about other people. You strive to enter salvation. And then Jesus tells that person why. Why it is that we should strive to enter that narrow door. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourself being cast out, Luke 13, 22 through 28. So Jesus lumped Jacob in with Abraham and Isaac and the prophets. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, was he saying that they're on the same plane as the prophets, but not prophets? Well, in the original Greek, there is no division placed between these men's names and the prophets. And the and that is placed after Jacob's name is the same and that is placed between the names of his father and his grandfather. Jesus said that Jacob was a prophet, as was his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. So yes, Israel was a prophet. But this then begs the question, what's prophecy? What, what does it mean to prophesy? And are there a difference between the two? Well, the same root word is used to mean those two words. Prophecy is a noun. Prophesy is a verb. And prophecy, stripped to its most basic biblical definition, is this. It's a message from God. And so, to prophesy is to proclaim a message from God. And the one that does it, therefore, is a prophet. Abraham did this, telling his son Isaac that God would provide a lamb for himself. He did this when he passed on the truth of the works of God in the lives of man. And he did this when he spoke the covenant truth to his family, as did Isaac. And now Jacob, Israel, is about to do the same thing. So these men being prophets, that's not uncommon. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 34, we're told that Moses was a prophet, where we read, there has not been yet arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. <clears throat> so who then in the Bible was the first prophet? We know that Abraham was, but were there prophets before him? Well, Jude tells us in verse 14, but Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam also prophesied about these men. He was just seven generations after Adam. Was he the first prophet? Well, let's go to the source once again to find out. Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, 
Chapter 11, verses 50 and 51, we read of prophets once again. Picks up, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I will tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Zechariah, yeah, we know Zechariah was a prophet, but Abel? Do you remember who Abel was? The second son of Adam after Cain? All we've ever known Abel to be famous for was getting murdered. Abel, a prophet? What did he say? What did he do that made him a prophet? Well, we're given hints to both of those by Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though which he was, um, I'm sorry, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So here, God tells us more about this prophecy thing. He links faith with prophecy. To be a prophet, you not only have to have a message from God, but you must believe him and it. And we're told in Hebrews 11.4 that the faith of Abel still speaks. And what his faith is still speaking is the truth that he died for. He worshiped the Lord rightly. He believed the Lord, and his actions proved that he did, and he died for it. But Cain had faith too. And the faith of Cain is still speaking to us as well. He had faith too, only his faith was in himself and not in the Lord. He had faith, and his faith spoke and is still speaking to this day. Again, faith is linked with prophecy, and without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And without faith, you can't believe what it is that God has said. And if you do not believe, you will not proclaim. What most people proclaim, either right or wrong, they truly believe. Greta Stromberg truly believes that we humans have the ability to destroy the world through climate change. She's heard that message. She believes that message, and she proclaims that message. She is a modern-day prophet, a false prophet, to be sure. But she's a great example of what a prophet does. And could this be, then, the reason why so many professing Christians never proclaim? But saints, rest assured that your lives, whether your mouth speaks or not, your life is actually proclaiming something. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Manifested means to be made known. You are proclaiming something with your life. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God as well as the one who does not love his brother. That's verse 10, and in it we're told that there is a message being preached by every one of our lives. Our lives prove not who we are, but whose we are. And then beginning in verse 11, we are told what the demarcation line looks like. 
This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was, the evil, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Yep. Cain is still speaking. His faith is still speaking, as is Abel. And Jacob, Jacob is a prophet, as was his father and his grandfather. Only what Jacob is about to do is different than what his father and his grandfather did. His father, his grandfather, they spoke of future things with assurance, a promise of a people and a land. But what Jacob is about to do is different. He's going to speak individually to present people about future truths. He starts telling his sons about their future. And he begins with his oldest, which brings us brings about the first of those three questions, the question about Judah and his older brothers and their sins. Verses 3 through 12. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and my beginning and my vigor, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in strength, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So what Jacob is talking about here is told to us in chapter 35, verse 22. Now it happened while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about, heard about it. First of all, ew. But that wasn't his mom, though. She was the handmaiden of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And she would have been at least 15 years older than Reuben. And from the text, Reuben, we know that Reuben didn't have the hots for this woman. That wasn't the reason he did what he did. He did this to undermine his father's authority, to prove that he was the man, and that he was, in fact, the leader within the family. This was not an act of passion. It was a thought-out action of a man who was trying to overthrow his father and gain political leverage over him and his brothers. And then he turns to Simeon and Levi. Verses 5 and 8. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they killed men, and in their self-will they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is strong, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide, among, divide them among Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So, so far, this prophecy thing in the family of Jacob isn't going so good. No doctors or lawyers in this family. Then we're brought up to verses 8 through 12. Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, he has gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And, he, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And he ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. So in thinking about Judah, don't forget that it was Judah 
who was the first to suggest to his brothers that they sell Joseph for cash back in chapter 37. And then it was Judah who went on with his life after selling his brother for cash. Having sons and giving his sons in marriage. It was Judah who would then act deceitfully towards his daughter-in-law in not giving her to his third son. And then who would have relations with her afterwards. But it was also Judah who offered himself as a willing sacrifice if something were to happen to Benjamin in chapter 43. And it was also Judah who, after realizing that his daughter-in-law, now wife, Tamar, had acted more uprightly than he had, that he didn't follow through with that condemnation of death, who never had relationships with her ever again, but who kept her, took care of her, provided for her, for the rest of her life. The sins of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they, these brothers, they never seem to have learned from them. We are never told that they ever repented and learned from them or that their character had changed in the slightest. So much so that when Reuben, in trying to convince his dad to, to let Benjamin go back with him to get Simeon, when he offered up his own children as a ransom, Jacob didn't trust him. He knew something about the character of Reuben. But Judah? Judah is a great representation of what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 means when we're told, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, but to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What Judah had gone through in his life was not easy. God killed his two oldest sons because they were evil in his sight. And he had it learned. He had to be trained by the discipline of the Lord. He had to be thoroughly disgraced for him to get a real look at who and what he was and then submit to the training and discipline of the Lord. And he did. He changed. And historically, there is no recorded prophet, king, or judge that we know of that ever came from the tribe of Reuben. He never did excel. And the prophecy spoken to Simeon and Levi of being divided and scattered to one of the sons, that was a curse, Simeon. When they left the promised land, Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, was the third largest leaving Egypt, as told to us in Numbers 1.23. But within 35 years, they lost over 60% of their people during that wandering time in the desert. And at the end of that time, when they entered the promised land, they were the smallest of the tribes. Numbers 26, 14. But at the same time, the dividing and the scattering, that was a blessing to the tribe of Levi. Because of their willingness to stand for the righteousness of the Lord during the rebellion of the golden calf, they would never receive an allotment of land. They would be scattered throughout the nation Israel. But they would receive the greatest of blessings because Yahweh was their inheritance, not land, as told to us in Joshua 33. But this prophecy spoken over Judah, this is different. C.H. Spurgeon said of it, The dying patriarch was speaking not of his own son Judah, 
But while speaking of Judah, he had a special eye to our Lord, who sprang from the tribe of Judah. So everything, therefore, which he says of Judah, the type, he means with regard to our great Judah, our greater Judah, the anti-type, our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, because of the demonstrated performance of the Lord, we know that Jesus is a lion of the tribe of Judah, as told to us in Revelation 5.5. 5. And what is told to us in Judah, or told to Judah, as recorded for us in verse 10, that is the demarcation line between Christianity and Judaism. In verse 10, we're told, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of, of all the peoples. And for the Jewish people, they mark that prophecy, verse 10, as the tipping point for the coming Messiah. They rightly understood the meaning of the prophecy as given to Judah here. The leadership part of that verse, verse 10, that took some 640 years to fulfill in the reign of David as king. And that second part, the part concerning Shiloh, that would take 1,600 years to come to pass. But from the time of, of David, until the Herods in the first century Israel, a prince of Judah, of the tribe of, of Judah, of David, always sat on the throne over Israel. And this included all those times when they were taken captive or had foreign control over them, including the Babylonian captivity. And when Rome first conquered Israel, the nation still had a king, and the nation still could be considered sovereign because they were still had the right to execute judgment on people, to authorize, to execute people. But that ended in A.D. 7, when the Roman government instituted the Herods and determined that the Jewish people could not be trusted even with that limited amount of self-rule. And when this happened, the saw this as a disaster of unfulfilled prophecy because the last bit of the scepter of Judah had been removed and Shiloh had not come. It's recorded that the rabbis walked through the streets of Jerusalem wailing, woe unto us for the scepter has been taken away from Judah and Shiloh has not come. But Shiloh had come. Jesus was alive at that time. In fact, this could have been the year that he sat in the temple at 12 years old teaching the rabbis. Again, fulfilled prophecy. And then Jacob then moves out of birth order and skips down to number the sons number 9 and 10. And the reason for this was they, like the others, were the wife of Leah, verses 13 through 15. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. And he shall be a shore for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds, and he saw as a resting place that was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. And then the next four sons, these were all produced by the handmaidens of Leah and Rachel. Verses 16 through 21. Dan shall render justice to his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. Verse 18, for your salvation I hope, O Yahweh. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. 
As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. But what are we to make of verse 18? Why in the midst of all this does he say, For your salvation I hope, O Yahweh? Well, the tribe of Dan is historically swallowed up by Judah. And with the sons of Israel recorded in Revelation 7, his name is not Lair. He's not part of the 144,000 spoken of there. But why would Dan being swallowed up by Judah cause Jacob to cry out to the Lord like this? It could be. But the telling of the prophecy to his son when he faithfully recounted to Dan what would happen, that he would be a serpent in the way that it would bite at the horse's heels, that he had triggered in his memory the first telling of that covenant promise as told to us in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, when Yahweh said, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than any other cattle and more than every other beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Or it could have just been that as Jacob told his sons of the coming faithlessness of their prodigy, the ruin and the train wreck of the nation Israel that would come, that he was forced to look away from man and to his only true hope, to the Lord. And then Israel turns to the children of Rachel, to Joseph and Benjamin, verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over a wall, and the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him, and they bore a grudge against him. But his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the top of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Verses 22 and 23 speak of the younger years of life of Joseph. But then beginning in verse 24, Jacob begins to speak as to why Joseph had prospered to the degree that he had all those years. It wasn't in Joseph or even of Joseph. It was all the Lord. And there's something else that we can learn of Jacob in how he speaks of God here. Because when his uncle Laban chased him down back in chapter 31, there Jacob rightly told Laban, if the God of my father and the God of Abraham and the dread of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered the decision last night, verse 42 how he saw God, how he knew God back then. But now, here, he doesn't speak of God as the God of his father or the dread of Isaac or even the God of Abraham. Now he speaks of this God as his God. Yahweh is mighty, the mighty God of Jacob, his shepherd, the stone of rock of Israel the personal God of your father, Joseph, the Almighty. And then verse 26, he says something that only a true saint, one who has truly walked with the, walk, with the Lord, who personally knows the Lord can say, 
He says, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. You see, the years that Jacob had walked with the Lord, the years that the Lord had faithfully been with Jacob, the years that Jacob had faithfully followed the Lord, had taught him some things. Primarily, the Lord in his gracious mercy had taught Jacob what a wretched, deceitful sinner he was. And for this reason, as he could long, as he could stand there on his deathbed and look back at the faithfulness of God in his life, he saw that grace of God, the love of God, that faithfulness of God towards him as far surpassing that of the grace and the love and the faithfulness of God towards his father and his grandfather, who he esteemed as much better men than he was. He knew as he laid there on that bed who he was, and he knew who God was. And because of this, he was enthralled with the God who had allowed him to walk with him for so long. And saints, think of the life of Jacob, because if you think that your life is just meaningless, you don't have some big ministry, you're not seemingly being used by God, Look at the life of Jacob. He spent years on the backside of the desert, years of unrecorded, mundane, day in, day out life. But it was a life worth living because every day he was submitting himself to the Lord. And because of the discipline of the Lord, God moved from being the God of his ancestor to being his God and then being his rock and his shepherd, his Yahweh. And that's what made his life worth living. And then he comes finally to the last son, Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. So the tribe of Benjamin was the most warlike of the tribes historically having Ehud come from his lineage, as well as that first king of Israel, Saul. And then after the advent of Christ, that very zealous person, Saul of Tarshish, the tribe of Benjamin. And then we finish this chapter with verses 28 through 33. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, so he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial site. Verse 31. Then there, there they buried Abraham and his wife. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. So Jacob finished commanding his sons, and he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So the last thing that Jacob does, after fulfilling the command by God to prophesy to his children, is make his heartfelt wishes known to them. And did you notice, look in your Bible, after the word Leah, did you notice that long line there after that? doesn't matter what translation you have, there's a long line there. 
That's not a hyphen. Her name wasn't hyphenated. It's not even a dash. It's called an M dash. And it's placed there. Because in the middle of telling him sons where to bury him, he's giving them instructions as where they are specifically to find that burial place. In the middle of that, he tells why that burial place is important. Because the cave was purchased by Abraham for a burial site. Verse 30. And he buried Leah there. Leah? Not Rachel? Why? Because we're told in Genesis 29, 16 through 18, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And in fact, he served 14 years for her. The Bible never tells us what that weak eyes of Leah, what that means. And I have heard it taught by men that it meant that she was hard in the eyes, that she was hard to look at, that she was branch ugly. You know, that she had fallen out of the ugly tree and she hit every branch on the way down. But that's a bad explanation of that text and of that word. And then some translations have that word describing her eyes as dull or plain, saying that she just had plain old eyes or dull eyes or maybe bad eyesight. And even some translations say that she had beautiful eyes. But the most accurate translation for the word given in describing her eyes is none of those things. It's tender. She had tender eyes. But at that moment, whatever the eyes of Leah had, for Jacob at that moment, they couldn't compare to Rachel because she was hot. She was smoking hot. I mean, the Bible says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. She was the whole package. And that's why Jacob loved her, at least at first. And then she proved to be very contentious and even mean-spirited. But it, it seems that in the years that it transpired from falling in love with Rachel and then living with her and then not living with her any longer, somewhere along the line he had truly fallen in love and valued those tender eyes of Leah. He loved Leah. And he desired to be buried alongside of her. So the question is, did all these prophecies come to pass? And the answer is, they have. Some of them took over 600 years to happen. Some, 1,600 years for them to be fulfilled. But like all prophecy, they all had one thing in common. They were all about Christ. They either pointed to Christ or were fulfilled or were a picture of Christ, which is why they have been recorded here for you and for me. And here's the answer to that second question. Why? Because we're meant to know stuff. I've said this before, but you have to understand we are meant to know stuff. We are meant to know in the same way that you know that you're alive. Do you know that you're alive? Are you absolutely convinced I'm alive? 
This is how we're supposed to know things of the Bible. You're supposed to know the things of the Lord in the same way that you know. I can say with absolute assurance, I am a human. We're supposed to know the things of the Lord in the same way that we can know anything. We are supposed to be absolutely sure, absolutely convinced, absolutely positive about some things. Like that there's a God in heaven, as told to us in Daniel 2, 28. That Jesus is Lord, and that means that Jesus is God. That he has all authority in heaven on earth given to him, Matthew 28, 18. That he is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 6, 5, that he is our only sovereign and Lord, Jude 1, 4, that he is in fact the Lord of Lords, Revelation 17, 14. We are supposed to know this, and we are supposed to know that this book that we hold in our hands is absolutely, positively, 1,000% trustworthy. In fact, Jesus, when praying to his Father, said of the word, he said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. And this is why these blessings of Jacob have been recorded for us. But the question then is, are there prophets any longer? Is prophecy still a valid gift from the Lord to the church? Well, first of all, prophecy is not one of the sign gifts. It's not included with tongues and healings. It's a gift from God to his people. And once again, if you have been given a gift by God, the gift of being able to sing or play an instrument, the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching, the gift of hospitality, or any other gift, including the gift of making money, those gifts are not for you. They are given for the church as told to us in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And you may be thinking, well, since the office of apostle has ended, there are no more apostles running around. And by the way, if someone calls themselves apostle, you should be running away from them. There are no more apostles running around. If you think that, you're right. And so you might be thinking, since that's true, has the office of prophet ended as well? And the answer to that is yes. Jesus was the first and last to hold that office. Well, does this then not prove that prophecy and prophets have ended? No. The office is no longer valid, but the gift is. And to prove this point, I'm going to use that verse the one that we spoke about earlier, 1 Corinthians 14.1. Now, the letter to the church is background. The letter to the church to Corinth, the first letter, it's a scathing rebuke towards a church that has lost its bearings. It started to allow culture and man-made religions, religious traditions to infiltrate it. And the letter is sent to this church to get its heart back in the right place, to set its love back into the right place. And God starts talking about the gifts given to the church and the offices that are, are in the church back in chapter 12. There he starts that section by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. That includes you. 
And then in verse 4 through 7, he tells us concerning these gifts. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Variety of ministries, same Lord. Variety of workings, same God who, who works everything in everyone. But to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. And then the rest of chapter 12 and into chapter 13 is instructions on the gifts, corrections on how they are to be used, and even what are true gifts versus false gifts. But chapter 13 of 1 1 Corinthians, the correction for all the spiritual woes is is actually spoken of there. What the church is going wrong and what is allowed in it is actually spoken of there. I'm going to read all of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So bear with me, because it is the setup. There it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. You guys are aware of these verses. And if I have the gift of prophecy and don't know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, but as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is jealous. Does not brag. Is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not make or take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. Of their gift of tongues, they will cease. Is their knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like an, and reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been known fully. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So chapter 13 is all about love. And we think it's talking about us. This chapter is the single most used chapter in the Bible at weddings to tell people what they are supposed to be. Husbands, this is how you're supposed to love your wife. Wife, this is how you're supposed to love your husband. It's the hammer that we use to nail people with when they're not being what we consider loving. But are we loved? Is that how the Bible speaks of us? Is that how it talks about us, that we are loved and we just need to be more loving? Who is it that the Bible says is love? 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone in loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And since God is love, and now with that in mind, does that not put those 1 Corinthians 13 verses in a different light? 
Doesn't that move our focus off of ourselves and then on to God? And then with that in mind, and that was the intent of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul then takes us to 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And in the original Greek, they don't put those two things against each other. The original Greek tells us to earnestly pursue love and to desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. This is the point that is being made here. God loves you. Again, those 1 John 4, 7 verses. He's given you his son. He's given you life and life more abundantly. And that abundant life is found in pursuing love, in chasing after God. But the thing is, saints, God is not running away from you. He's not fleeing from you as you attempt to pursue him. The issue is not God, it's us. We are so sinful, which is demonstrated by the fact that we are lazy in getting to know this God. We are so sinful, which is demonstrated by the fact that we are so easily distracted away from the lover of our soul. We are sinful, which is demonstrated by the fact that we will not obey the commands of the Lord. But the good news is that we've all been redeemed. If you're a saint and we've been given a new heart, the ability to know and to love God, and the more that we pursue love, more that we will actually know love. And the more that you know love, oh saints, the more you will fall in love with love. And this is why Paul could tell you, tell me, earnestly desire. And in that desire, pursue love. To earnestly desire to prophesy. You see, when you pursue love, oh, you're going to catch love. And because he's already caught you, that's why you will catch him. And the more that you pursue love, the more that you will come to know love. And then the more that you will speak of that love. You just won't be able to help it. It will permeate your every thought, your every action. When you speak, you will speak a love. When you see the sunrise, look what God has done. When you see these clouds moving across the sky, look what the Lord has done. When the gracious gifts of God are poured out on your life, look what the Lord has done for me. The more that you pursue love, the more you will prophesy. Do you remember that definition of prophecy? A message from God? When we pursue love, we will come to know love to a greater degree. And the more that we love, the more that we know love, the more we will proclaim that which we know. We will prophesy. We will proclaim of the goodness of God, the truth of God. 
We will believe and we will speak. And just like Jacob, we, we too can speak the future into the present with people. We can and we are actually supposed to. We are meant to prophesy. Tell them the truth of love. There is a God in heaven, a holy God, who we have committed treason against in our love of self. Tell them of the eternal damnation that they face because of their treason. And then prophesy. And tell them the truth of the love of God is demonstrated in his Son, that spotless, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And those that are his, oh dear saints, you can rest assured that they will flee to their Goel, to their Redeemer. And this, saints, is how we are prophets and get to prophesy. Let's pray.